0: So we're back with Daniel. Uh, hallelujah. Yeah, some people gave me, you know, I mean, it was good to do last week and it was nice to have EMI and everything like that. But, um, and, and then I do need to give you a disclaimer um, that I am away on holiday for a couple of weeks and so we won't be here during the week and Daniel goes on pause yet again. But for now, we're back with Daniel. And uh, we're in Daniel chapter 4. Two weeks ago, we started in the chapter. It's the story of a dream that initially terrifies Nebuchadnezzar. um, And then once Daniel explains it and interprets it to him, uh, instead of acting on that which this dream activated inside of him, concern and awareness and something's big is about to go down, He chooses to ignore God's kindness in sending the disrupting dream. And he ignores God's warning. And uh, he begins this, as it were, this, this letter out to the nations of the world that were part of his empire. So it's almost got this like Pentecostal language, you know, from Acts chapter two, Pentecost. You know, people of every language, tribe, you know, everything like that, and he starts up, and he tells them how content and how prosperous he was, how successful he had been, and then he describes how he lost everything by losing his mind because he wouldn't look to God, and the moment of his losing it all is when he takes credit for it all. Look at what I've done for my own might, my own power, my own glory. And he literally becomes a beast. Now, if you're into apocalyptic literature, which is this kind of literature that we, you know, with dreams and imagery and everything, it's, it's like the prophetic literature on steroids with pictures. And uh, so we're using all this imagery, but you have this prototype of an antichrist, if you like, Who becomes a beast? So this is helping us interpret other forms of this literature a little bit later on. And triggered by his pride, he falls. And you're left wondering, you know, like in such a great way these Hebrews thought, when was he most crazy? Was he most insane when he set out to crush and conquer people? Like who does that? When he was the head of this city-building empire, when he was content in his garden city taking all the credit, when in verse 30 he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Didn't have ego issues. When was he most crazy? Was he most crazy when he was thinking that he was the be-all and end-all and the greatest, or when he was eating grass like an ox? And So we have this prototype the Bible will develop. Um, but let's not miss this point. For all these prototypes and images and characters who describe things, God restores this beast. He actually is brought to repentance. He's brought to the place of looking to God. Just when you think, surely this one is completely lost and there's no mercy. 1 Peter chapter 5, God is described as the God of all mercy. And even this beast is shown kindness. God forgives his pride, restores him when he, quote from the the passage, lifts up his eyes to heaven. He's just been looking at the world, everything around him. But in this moment of sanity, he starts looking up. And he surrenders, I love this, he surrenders to the God of the people he took captive. You know, so often in history, that's how God works through his church and his people. His people seem to be losing, but if they will hold their testimony, it's the conquerors who are conquered by God through the witness of his people. And yeah, this emperor surrenders to the God of the people he has conquered. And, you know, we then looked last week, what what promises of contentment and power does a garden city promise us that could take our eyes off God and stop us looking up? So this week, we want to go back to the same story, but we're going to kind of dig into a particular aspect of its meaning and theology. Our reading this week could be much shorter. Last week we had to read the whole chapter. I'm going to just pick out the bits that, you know, restate the meaning of the chapter. So we start in, um, and fortunately for us, the main point of the chapter is repeated three times verbatim. And it's also repeated in the introduction and in the conclusion. So it's not hard to miss the main point. So we're just going to look at those things. King Nebuchadnezzar, that's how he introduces himself still. Interesting, he calls himself king. To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So that's His introduction. Then he goes on to tell them about how he got so worried about his dream, how he asked for its interpretation. In chapter 9, Daniel starts interpreting the dream for him. And as you go through it, you'll see that you know, he had dreamt of a tree that was going to be cut. And this tree was amazing. And literally fed all the nations and provided for everyone and was sufficient for everything. Seemed to be absolutely amazing. Until a watchman from heaven, a messenger from heaven... Spoke a word. The tree was cut down. It was bound. And it was kept like that for seven times. Probably seven years. And we read this in verse 17. The decision is announced by the messengers or the watchmen. The holy ones declare the, uh, the verdict. So that, and here's the line, verbatim. The living may know that. The most high is sovereign or the most high rules over the kingdoms, over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. So then he gets, Daniel hears this because this was actually verbatim in the dream. So you're you're not going to miss it. Daniel then repeats this in the interpretation. He says, your majesty, this is the decree against you. You'll be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge verbatim that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And then he explains the command of the stump. And then he says this very importantly, verse 27, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my counsel. Renounce your sin. Repent. Do what is right. And your wickedness, renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. Now we're in the third person and we learn in verse 28 that, it's actually fulfilled. A year later, Nebuchadnezzar is wandering along and he, you know, on, the, on his garden city walls, and he looks out and he says, Isn't this for the amazing power and glory of my majesty? And instantly he loses it. It's fulfilled. <coughs> and then at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar raised, I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Yazar concluding statement, as it were, his benediction. His dominion or his kingdom is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So that's, remember that was right there in the beginning. Let's come back at the end. All peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of earth. No one, can say, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have I learned, Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he says, I now learn to praise and glorify the king of heaven. He does what he's right. And everything he does is right. His ways are just. And if you walk in pride, he can humble you. So this headline is repeated three times. The Most High rules over or is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Now that raises a whole host of questions when you look at the world today. When you look at good rulers and bad rulers and good governments and bad governments, you look at so many wars breaking out. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you're thinking, really? He's sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth. Does that mean that he approves of all the kingdoms on earth? Why would he then command this king to repent and renounce his ways? So, what God permits is not always what God desires. This is going to become evident as we go through, but I want to highlight three things. The first is you can't miss it again and again and again. God rules, God is king. The second is if God is king, I must repent and do what is right. I must do justice. The third is that if God rules in such a way that does not negate human choice or rely on deterministic control. That's a really interesting dynamic. And we'll unpack that. Why would, if if there's no choice involved, why would the king be called to repent? Now, there's real consequence. So God rules. If he is the king, I am not. (laughs) I need to repent. And I need to do what is right. I need to do justice. But God also rules in such a way that does not negate the choices I make or rely on deterministic control. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. This is a huge challenge to Nebuchadnezzar's whole world view. Up till now, he's been the reason for his success, whether it's on the battlefield or in building his city or getting what he wants from his wise men. You know, when we start taking credit for our success, I'm reminded of a quote I learned from a a sociology professor recently who told me that over, this is a very indirect quote, um, more or less is what they said, over 100 years of sociological research has taught us one great truth, that the ability of humans to succeed in this life depends on them successfully making a great choice. That choice is who their parents are. That's what sociology has shown about your likelihood. If you can choose your parents well, you've got a good chance of coming out the other side on top, okay? That's what genius, 100 years worth of secular sociological research. I w- I'm reminded of what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. You see, Nebuchadnezzar starts by calling himself king of his kingdom. But everything that follows leaves you in no doubt that his kingdom is temporary. I mean, all the way since the very beginning. His his kingdom will not last. In fact, from chapter 2, he sees that a stone that is not cut by human hands is going to come through. That stone will last. That does represent the kingdom of God. You see that his empire, his kingdom, is compromised by his own weakness and pride. But you also see, you can't miss it in the story, that even in his weakness and pride, for which God holds him accountable, what he has has been given to him by God. It's been entrusted to him by God. So you better use it well, O King Nebuchadnezzar. There's no one who carries the stewardship of influence, whether it's in a home or in a place of business, you know, in an in a educational environment or in a national government, that God will not hold to account for the dominion He's entrusted to them. You know what Paul says? He's with the Athens church. I mean, he's with he's in Athens. He hasn't even got the, the church going there yet. And they've got groups of people who believe that life is completely random, accidental. They've got another group of people who believe that they are deeply, deeply fatalistic. Everything is predetermined. So one is random. The other is completely predetermined, and everything is planned up front. <clears throat> the other is is chaos, it's not random, because the forces of a polytheistic word, many gods are competing for your loyalty. And they even have an altar to the unknown God. So into this world of predetermined and chaos and randomness, Paul introduces an important idea that there are many things you cannot control. And there are some critical things you must. And he says this, the God who made the world, in other words, you didn't make him. This is a whole lesson in the story of Daniel. And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and Everything else. David sang, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and splendor. Everything in heaven and earth are yours. Wealth and honor come from you. Paul says this, from one man God made all the nations, back in Acts seventeen twenty six, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he has marked out their times in history. He's given the boundaries of their lives and their lands. Did you choose your parents? Did you choose your home language? Did you choose whether you would be male and female? All of these things are choices people are trying to take back from God and failing spectacularly. I didn't choose to be white. You didn't choose to be black or colored or Asian or whatever it is. There's so much about our lives we cannot choose. We are not God. But that does not mean that without that choice, our lives are insignificant. Paul says this, God did this so that we would seek him. Reach out for him. Find him. He's not far from any of us. God rules. And he's established an opportunity for our lives. We can fight the evidence of his rule or we can align our lives with it. But the first step That of this recognition, as Daniel explains to the king, and as Jesus preached when he came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. When you realize God is king, when you realize you are not, you've got one course of action. And your answer is yes or no. Will I repent, seek righteousness, and do justice? That's what what King Nebuchadnezzar is told in verse 27. You've got to really make some big changes. It's called repent. But the repent starts in your mind, in which you stop enthroning yourself as king for your own glory and majesty and success. So, verse 27 Your majesty, be pleased to accept my counsel. Renounce your sins, do what is right. Renounce your wickedness and be kind to the oppressed. You see, theologically now, God's kingship, the fact that God rules, his sovereignty is not deterministic. In meaning this, that God is not responsible for everything that happens or that humans do not have a meaningful choice. Daniel and this whole story makes it clear. Nebuchadnezzar needs to repent. He needs to renounce his pride. is evil. He needs to make a change. And this change starts by acknowledging who is the true king. Joyce Baldwin, an Old Testament scholar, says that biblical prophecy, now you'd think prophecy must mean determinism. You know, if you can speak into the future, if you can speak God's word, it means it, it must equal sort of like some, he says, not so. Look again. When God's word comes, it comes with personal contingency, meaning it puts you at a crossroads. You suddenly find yourself faced with a choice. What do I do now? You see, all God's words create choice. There was a theologian called Karl, Karl Barth, and, and he loved preaching God's word because he believed that in that moment, people came to a crossroads and that crossroads was a catalyst for the future of their lives. It creates a crisis of responsibility and choice. So God's sovereignty is not deterministic. Now, I'm going to go here because I just need to. Hold your horses, just saddle them in. What about election and predestination? I'm glad you asked. Hey? Does God not decide who gets saved or not? Now, election and predestination are clearly very biblical words. And I can see the elders are getting out their notepads just to make sure. that. But they are used in very different ways by different people. Preachers and teachers, they use the same words. The Bible clearly speaks of election. The Bible clearly speaks of predestination. Now, some people believe God decides who will be saved or not. And they would use, for example, the language of this chapter, that God does as he pleases. And no one can argue back. And they would reference, for example, Romans chapter 9. It's the favorite one. To argue that humans do not actually have a choice. Their choice is predetermined by God. Probably the most articulate and determined uh, proponent of this view is a man called John Calvin. And he says this, by predestination, quoting directly from his institutes, we mean the eternal decree of God by which he determined within himself whatever he wished to happen in regard to every person, where he said man. All are are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. Accordingly, each has been created for one or the other of those ends. You've been predestined by God to life or to death. Now, that gets preached out there and people regard this as absolute gospel. He continues, Regarding... The lost. remember Nebuchadnezzar says, God does as he pleases. John Calvin says, it pleased him to doom them to destruction. By contrast, there is another way of interpreting those words and that understanding. And I haven't got time to go into all the stuff, but I do want to say that that is definitely not the only way to understand these terms and these ideas, which are in the Bible. There is another way of interpreting election and predestination that's consistent with the way that it's actually lived out by the people in this book, in which someone seemingly damned gets saved, which gets really confusing. Predestination in this theological view means the predetermined redemptive plan of God to justify, sanctify, and glorify whoever freely believes. So, John 3, verse 16 Whosoever believes, all people are created equal as image bearers of God. God desires mercy over sacrifice. No one person is ever created for damnation or predetermined by God to that end. Those who perish only do so because they refuse to accept his truth and be saved. Now, I could give you a truckload of scriptures to back that up as well. I honestly don't believe that you're meant to just flip a coin and pick as you choose. I want... (laughs) If God does as he pleases, the question is, what pleases God? Now, I haven't got time to unpack all these arguments. But we cannot use the undeniably biblical truth that God reigns to argue that God controls choices, they argue, therefore, that God controls our choices. This chapter shows us that God reigns, and we must make a choice. So I want to draw this out more practically. There is a real choice. God rules, but does not negate our human choice or rely on deterministic control. Why is this important? Because this topic does not just cover how we get saved and go to heaven, as it were, but it covers how we are to respond to evil and injustice in the world. You see, if everything that is happening is God's direct will, purpose, and decision, then as some very evil rulers have taught in the name of Christianity, you have to accept their evil and their injustice because you're accepting their God. I wanna come to Cape Town, you know. Cape Town has seen in our history a marriage of convenience. And the convenience was to the colonizers between the fatalism of the Islam, of the slave population that was brought in to serve the colonizers. So there was this deep fatalism that was part of Islamic worldview inshallah, whatever happens must be the will of God. And so the way you cope with whatever happens is you learn to do so tranquilly. It's quite an, back to Athens, it's an epicurean, I mean, sorry, a stoic worldview. So you you learn to cope with it. You're stoic about what's going on. You accept it all. And so this implicit Fatalism inside Islam was then married to this determinism inside Calvinism. And it's very strong inside the Western Cape. Missionaries will tell you that Cape Town sees more people convert from Islam to Christianity than almost anywhere else in the world. They'll also tell you, a little bit more slyly and secretly, that Cape Town sees more Christians convert. Christianity to Islam as well. Why? Because this atmosphere that everything is the will of God, the way of God, you've just got to accept it and you can't oppose it, especially whoever is in charge, whoever's got the levers of empire, you can't stand against it. Because you can move between The fatalism and the determinism without changing your fundamental theology about how God wants to work in the world. People change the name of their God, but they don't recognize the God I worship has to be a completely different God. And that's sadly true of Christians who believe in this kind of predetermined mechanistic worldview. Now, this does not mean that the world is out of control and that God is not in charge and that God is not king. We're unpacking precisely how his kingdom comes through his people on earth. But we are not called to accept evil, oppression, injustice, and suffering as a strange manifestation of the mysterious will of God. And we are not called to bow to the powers of the people who say to us, God's put me here, so you better live with my kind of empire. Christians, You have a kingdom. You have an empire that you are living for. And it's not provided to you by any human government. Every human government will fall. They all temporary. And they all aspire to claim the kind of allegiance that belongs to God alone. You see... We are called to repent and do what is right and be kind to the oppressed precisely because our good God is king. We're not yet to accept all the rubbish in the name of some misguided theology. It's interesting how much Daniel cared for, prayed for, and counseled a truly broken man. But it's so clear in his story that he knows who his good king is. And if we are going to become complicit in the story of entertaining brokenness and injustice... And oppression in our world. We are misunderstanding how God's good kingdom comes. But that's for chapter 7. That's for chapter 7. We're going to see one like the son of man. And, And you know what? Justice and judgment is going to happen. And it's going to happen in history. And it's going to change history. then it's going to shape history itself. It's not just going to end history. Judgment and justice is not just going to end history. That's what Christians have often taught. Judgment and justice will break into the middle of history because the kingdom is now and not yet. And so on the cross when Jesus died, judgment and justice Broke into the world on that day, so that forgiveness and grace might be made known to you and to me, and to everyone who will trust in a good God, so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Whosoever. And so Jesus said these remarkable words to His church uh, through uh, Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. This rule and reign of God is meant to be unlocked by the people of God. This remaking of the world, this reconciling of bringing people together. Do you know that you hold the keys? Do you know what they are? Do you know how to use them? This kingdom, Jesus says, will save the world. Let's pray together. Carol reminded us that we need to often forgive people and maybe, maybe this morning you, you might need to just forgive a, a precious person in your life who's told you that God doing what he pleases includes sending people into lost eternity. For giving you a picture of a God who does not say whosoever believes. Or maybe just saying, God, I forgive those who've taught me that I literally have to believe that every evil thing comes from you. It's not true. It's not true. Evil doesn't need the help of God. And God does not need the help of evil to accomplish his purposes. It's not true. I forgive them in Jesus' name.